Hello everyone, this is Pastor James and welcome back to our midweek Bible study. We're still in chapter 19 today and we will probably have the opportunity to finish this chapter if we start quickly and don't waste any time. Uh, It's going to be a little longer than usual, but I do want to finish chapter 19 today because next week is spring break and we will not be doing our Wednesday night services and I'm going to take a week off from doing a Bible study. So uh, it's been several years since I've taken a week off from doing that. And uh, I'm just going to take a week off and rest a little bit from that aspect. So, read with me Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, and let's talk about Jesus blessing the little children. It says, One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. But Jesus said, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. Alright, so once again we see uh, children in the picture, and you have to remember back at the beginning of chapter 18 when the disciples asked Jesus who is the greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus proceeded to call a child over to him, and a small child, probably around a toddler's age, was the one that Jesus brought over and sat in his lap and used as an example as he was speaking to his disciples. Today we're reading about parents who are bringing their children to Jesus and having them pray over them and lay hands on them. And the Greek term in the New Testament that's used for these children uh, was tabreth. And uh, I I think I'm pronouncing that right. I may not be pronouncing it right. But it, it means infants or very young children. So you're looking at infants or just at the age of basically beginning to walk. And parents were bringing these very young children over to Jesus, <clears throat> having him pray over them, and bless them. <coughs> Excuse me. And you have to remember that it was pretty customary <coughs> for people to bring their children to the elders on the evening of the Day of Atonement and have those elders pray for them and bless them uh, during that time. And, and the fact that Jesus lays his hands on these children was a very symbolic way of people bestowing blessings on others throughout Scripture. You look any passage, especially in the Old Testament, As people uh, bless each other, they lay their hands on the person that they're blessing and they bless them with things, whether it be the birthrights or the blessings of God or, you know, anything like that. It was very symbolic. Another really cool thing about this is that small children have a really good sense uh, when it comes to people. Now, it's not always 100% correct because you always have these little kids that are afraid of anything. Um, you know, there are kids who are afraid of beards. There are kids who are afraid of vacuum cleaners. I mean, there, there's just there's all kinds of reasons why kids are afraid. So it's not 100% of the time. But most kids generally have a good sense of who a person is and whether or not they're trustworthy. And so usually when a child or children avoid a person, um, there's a pretty good reason why. They have a very good sense about that. And the fact that Jesus loved children and children seemed to love him and they came to him was really a very comforting thing, and it kind of uh, testified to the character and the person that Jesus was. And there was nothing about Jesus that that concerned the children or the parents. Actually, people felt freely, and they wanted to come and bring their children and have Jesus touch them. Now, I don't know about you guys, but today, it's a different day and time. And it was even like this before COVID started, but parents are very particular about their kids, and they don't just want anyone to touch them. So the fact that parents came up and and had Jesus pray over them and touch them and lay hands on them showed the great amount of trust from the children and the parents in this process. Um, 
And so even the kids and the parents were drawn to, to Jesus. And the fact that the disciples rebuke these parents for this shows where their heart and focus of their ministry is during this time. You know, it's kind of sad that they were not as concerned about the least of these as we may think and believe that they should have been. They were a lot more concerned about ministering to adults and people. And, and you got to remember, there was a lot of Pharisees, um, the way that the Pharisees did things, their way of doing religion was stuck in the disciples' head. I mean, that's what they had grown up with. That's what they had seen modeled before them their whole lives. And the religious leaders may have prayed for the children, but it was probably more out of obligation or publicity, kind of like a politician. You know, it's like politicians go around and they read to children, but in reality, children don't fund their campaign and they're not making laws for children. They're making laws for people today. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that looks good, but it's not really their focus. Um, Jesus' focus was on the least of these. He loved people who were sinners. He loved people who were poor. He loved children. He loved widows. And, you know, you have to realize that the disciples were still having this internal battle and conflict over whether or not they were going to follow exactly what Jesus did and how he did it, or if they were going to do things like the Pharisees did them in some way, shape, and form. And once again, Jesus says, let them come to me because the kingdom belongs to anyone that is like these children. Once again, affirmation is given to children and their place in God's kingdom. We can never forget the calling we have to minister to the least of these when we come in contact with them. And so there's this great importance here, and the disciples are still learning this, and Jesus is still very willing to lay his hands on the children and to bless them and pray for them and to care for this, uh, this age group of the population that a lot of times were neglected by a lot of people. All right? So let's continue on. And uh, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, this is the rest of the chapter. And this somewhat goes with kind of what we were talking about before in our previous section. But we'll read it and we'll talk some and, and hopefully get finished today. It says, Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? The man asked. And Jesus replied, You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and I, the Son of Man, sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or property for my sake 
will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Okay, uh, in this passage, this mystery man comes up and he asks the million dollar question, what must I do to get eternal life? And this man gets a little specific with good deed. You know, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And everyone wants to have eternal life. It's a natural desire that's ingrained in all of us to want to live forever. And there's something of an understanding that something needs to happen in order for us to get eternal life. That It doesn't just come freely, but there's a price to pay for it. And this story is mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And even though he seems to be this mystery man in Matthew, Mark and Luke reveal a little more about this man. So Jesus almost always answered a question with a question. And in this instance, the man asked about what is what good deed must he do? And in Mark chapter 10, he kneels down and he calls Jesus a good teacher. Okay, so... Uh, he calls Jesus the good teacher, and in Luke 18, this rich young man is called a religious leader, and so uh, it also refers to Jesus as a good teacher. So Mark and Luke reveal a little more about how this man addresses Jesus, and he refers to him as good teacher, and not just talking about this good thing, but it also reveals that this man is rich, that he is a ruler, and that he is a religious leader. And these are important things to consider in this passage, and we'll talk about that some more in a second. So when Jesus asked this rich young man, or this religious ruler, Why do you ask me about what is good? Only God is good. Jesus is inquiring as to whether or not this rich young religious ruler actually sees Jesus as being the Messiah, the Son of God, or if he's trying to trap him or, you know, just get something from him. But in each of the three Gospels that mention this account, Jesus does not even give enough time for the young man to answer the question. Okay, so he says, why do you say that I am good? Only God is good. He doesn't even give the young man time to answer that, but he rather proceeds right into answering his question immediately. So the idea of Jesus asking this man this question Perhaps this man really did contemplate that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was good and that he was God's son. And he would need to answer that question internally and know the answer before he could publicly profess it to the world and believe that and have faith in that. Only God is good, so if Jesus is good, then he must also be God. Do we truly believe that? That is... A huge aspect of our faith and our theology of believing in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus moves on. He immediately answers this question by giving him this straightforward answer. You obey the law, okay? But what is the problem with this? I mean, there's a huge problem. No one can truly obey the law. It is an impossible endeavor, and everyone from Moses, the one who brought the law down from the mountain, to this point, in this moment in time, had failed except for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the only one who had obeyed the law to its entirety to be perfect, and everyone else had broken the law and therefore was a sinner and deserved to uh, spend eternity in hell because of sins, because of breaking God's law. 
Christ is giving him the answer that only he himself can accomplish. Okay? You need to understand that in this passage. Jesus is giving the answer that only he himself can obey the law. And this is the reason why the young man asked which ones. He understands. Okay, you said obey the law, but which ones? Because he knew that he couldn't obey them all. And that no one else has ever been able to obey all the laws. So which ones should they be focusing on? Okay? And Jesus begins to rope off the Ten Commandments. I mean, <clears throat> all right, we want to talk about the laws. Let's talk about the Big Ten. He starts listing all the laws that deal with dealing with your fellow man, the last six commandments. Um, these, the Ten Commandments, are the focus of the whole Old Testament law or the Mosaic law. I mean, it's referred to as both, and so just kind of throwing out those two terms. Um, the Ten Commandments are the focus of that. And this rich young man says that he has kept these things from his youth, but proceeds with the question of, what does he still lack? What else must I do? And the rich young man, this religious leader, he knew there was something still missing, and he was looking for an answer. It is very plausible that this young man may have really kept these commandments to their entirety since he was a young man. Um, according to their custom, um, and according to their other religious leaders, he probably thought that he did keep these commands. But if you remember, Jesus said, if you hate someone, you commit murder, and if you lust after someone, you commit adultery. Uh, this man was probably misunderstanding what it meant to actually keep the law as much as all the other religious leaders were misunderstanding it during this time. But let's just give him the generous benefit of the doubt and say that, yes, he kept those laws that Jesus mentioned, but he understood there was still something missing. And this is the ultimate challenge to this rich, young, religious ruler of a man that he was doing exactly what God called him to do, and yet there was still something missing. And then Jesus says, okay, if you want to have eternal life, this is what you got to do. Sell everything you have, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And in this moment, you see that material things were very important to religious leaders of Jesus' day. They viewed, and I want you to think about this, this is not just the religious leaders, this is all of Israel. All of Israel viewed wealth and possessions as blessings from God, and it was a display to others at how faithful they had been, and therefore God had blessed them with these things because of their faithfulness. Jesus is telling this man to just give it all away. Everything that God has blessed you with, everything that God has rewarded you with, give it all away. And that would have been heartbreaking because he was young and he had his entire lifetime to enjoy all of his wealth and his possessions and his leadership. I mean, when you think about that, he was a young man, but he was a leader and a religious leader. And if he followed Jesus in this moment, if he makes this decision, He's giving up everything he owns, which is a lot. But he's also giving up his authority and his friendships and his constituencies. I mean, he would have automatically been an enemy to everyone that he had been aligned with leading up to this moment. <clears throat> so before we proceed, I want us to understand there are, huge, there are two huge mistakes that we can make when we read this passage. The first mistake is assuming that we all must give it all away, okay? 
that everyone who is called by Jesus Christ for us to follow him and to be saved, that we all have to sell everything we have and give it away, give the money to the poor in order to be made right with Christ. That's not true. This is the only time that Jesus challenged someone to do this and then follow him. There are many people that are wealthy and many people have wealth and it is not a stumbling block to them. Rather, there are people in my church who are very wealthy people and they use it as a tool to glorify God and bless other people with financial things, with gifts, with with many types of different help um, because they use their wealth to glorify God. And so you have to understand that God doesn't call everyone to give everything they have away and, and give it to the poor. It's only people who are controlled by their financial status okay the second mistake is assuming that this doesn't apply to anyone because there are a lot of people who are consumed by wealth and things and they would benefit greatly by letting that stronghold in their life go there are some people who are absolutely controlled by money and by things and if they would be willing to just let those things go and give it to god and and give their hearts to god they would be a lot better off We have to understand that God challenges us to let some things go that He will allow others to have. And He also calls us to do things that He doesn't always require others to do. This is the beauty of a personal relationship with Christ. It's personal and it's custom fit to every one of us. It calls us to lay down the things that tempt us. It calls us to lay down the things that control us. And the things that tempt us and control us doesn't control necessarily control and tempt our neighbor. Now, it is important to notice that the young man walks away sad because he had much to walk away from. And it's not an easy thing to sacrifice what is important to us. Jesus understands this. Jesus knows that whenever he calls us to follow him, it is very difficult for us to lay things down that are important to us. And so Jesus addresses his disciples and he tells them, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing is is that you definitely need to take what Jesus says seriously because Jesus is not a liar. He doesn't tell false uh, things. His words are true and they should be taken with the full weight of their authority as the words of God. The second thing is is that it's hard for a rich person to be saved. Jesus would not say this if it weren't true. Rich people have a lot to walk away from. They have a lot to benefit from. They have a lot to gain in the world. And they have a lot to cling to and be devoted to. And when life is easy and enjoyable, um, it is hard to walk away from all that. The The sad thing is, is that in America... Um, even people who would consider themselves to be middle class or poor are actually really wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Um, Studies have shown time and time again that if you have clean drinking water that's available in your home, basically that's if you have running water in your home that comes out of a spigot. If you have a toilet that flushes, a bath that works, and a sink that works, you are more wealthy than 75% of the entire world. That means you're in the top 25% of the world's wealth by just having clean drinking water in your home. 
Um, so, so it's really scary to think about that, that even in our culture in America, it is extremely difficult for people to give up all the things that they not only have, but possibly could have. Because a lot of it is achieving dreams and achieving things that goals and tasks that you have set out that you want to accomplish. And sometimes giving those things up that you haven't even achieved yet is extremely difficult. But one thing to take note of is that um, this whole phrase, the camel going through the eye of the needle, is uh, somewhat debatable. Some scholars suggest that it's an actual literal and that it refers to uh, a sewing needle with the eye that only a small thread can go through and uh, that basically it would be impossible and somewhat humorous of a statement because obviously a camel, no matter what size the camel is, can fit through the eye of a sewing needle. Um, and so it would be kind of a humorous statement. But other scholars talk about how there were holes in the city walls and that um, you know, they were referred to as the eye of a needle because basically it was just big enough for a human to walk through it. And uh, some have claimed that perhaps a camel could make it through if the camel was, was able to get down on its knees and, and crawl through. But it was almost impossible for that to happen um, because, you know, how many animals are willing to cooperate to get down and crawl through a hole? Um, so either way, it's, it's extremely difficult, almost impossible, or it was definitely an impossible statement. The point of the analogy is to reveal the seriousness of how difficult it is for wealthy people to enter into heaven. Money tends to be a hindering part of many people's spiritual lives. And as noted in the passage, the disciples were amazed. And this shouldn't be surprising because remember, they've grown up in a time when the religious leaders used their wealth to show God's blessing and favor uh, to the people. That this is what happens when you're faithful with God. He will bless you and give you lots of money and lots of things. And they had read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, all these great patriarchs in the Bible that were faithful to God, and all of them were extremely, extremely wealthy. The idea that financial blessing went hand in hand with God's blessing was the understanding of the day, and that would be very hard to reset that lifelong teaching in your heart and mind. There may have been many of the disciples that even thought they would become wealthy from following Jesus and being his disciple, and they probably hoped for great wealth. I mean, if you think about it, um, every person on earth desires to have more money. We all want um, to be wealthier than, than what we are. We would love to have more money than what we have. Even people who have hundreds of millions of dollars want to be billionaires. And even people who are billionaires want to, uh, you know, be recognized as, you know, like, well, I'm the wealthiest person in the world. It's all a competition. It's all a way to gain. And so if you're poor, you want more money. Even if you're rich, you want more money. The disciples were people just like we were, and they probably hoped to be wealthy one day. Um, but in this moment, the disciples are probably beginning to realize that the life of simpleness that they had been living with Christ was probably going to be the life that they would live for the rest of their time on earth. This was, uh, you know, this was a prompted, this is what prompted the question. And the disciples say, well, well, who can be saved? Because they knew that they wanted wealth. They knew that everyone wants wealth. It's an understanding that everyone wants more money. And so they ask, well, who can be saved? 
and and what it while it seemed impossible for Jesus he, he made his statement Jesus compounds the statement with but yes it is impossible to be saved but with God all things are possible so go back to the beginning statement when he says good teacher what must I do Jesus says why do you refer to me as good only God is good and so if God is good and Jesus is good then Jesus is God and if through God all things are possible then technically what we're saying in this moment what Jesus is saying is through Jesus Christ basically that he is God all things are possible and that is a revolutionary statement that thank God for that statement because it ensures that any of us can be saved no matter the severity of the sin no matter the amounts of sin no matter the situation no matter the circumstances no matter how rich you are even if today you earned enough money and you were more wealthy than Jeff Bezos and you had a trillion dollars even though it's impossible for a rich person to be saved, through God, all things are possible. You can still be saved. And don't forget of the other examples of wealthy people who gave their lives to Christ. Um, you know, we have this in Scripture. Like, yes, Jesus said it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. But remember Zacchaeus, who gave away all his wealth and, and, and gave money back to the poor and people he cheated. Joseph of Arimathea. He uh, took Jesus' body and helped prepare for him for his burial. Barnabas, the disciple Matthew, who left his tax collector's booth, he would have been very wealthy. You have to remember that this is not a claim that only poor people would go to heaven and no rich people can enter. That would exclude a lot of people in the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs were extremely wealthy people. I mean, they had enough wealth that they they were able to function as kings. I mean, if you remember, Abraham conquered. Abraham and his personal army conquered five kings in the Old Testament and rescued his nephew Lot. So these men were so wealthy that they were operating as kings even though they weren't considered kings. So it's not a matter of the fact that these people have money and it's going to exclude them. You have to understand that. And Peter then asked, well, what will we get? Jesus, we, we've given up a lot. We, we followed you. We, we've come to serve you, and we've given up a lot. What will we get? And the response that Jesus gives was probably a little disappointing. They probably still wanted earthly wealth and fortune, but Christ promised them riches and blessings in eternity. For whatever you gave up now, you would get a hundredfold in return and would receive eternal life. And Jesus goes on to say, and the concept of who is great now and who will be great then is also mentioned. We must remember that whoever doesn't seem to be very great now may be the greatest when all things are made new and Jesus is reigning on his Father's throne. Guys, my question for you today is, how much do you believe in this stuff? What are you willing to give up in the name of Jesus? It doesn't mean that you must give it up it just means that you need to be willing to give it up because there may be a day when Jesus does call you to give it up in his name and guys we just need to be ready to do that we need to be ready to give up anything in the name of Jesus Christ to serve him to honor him and to glorify him alright let me pray for you today I'll let you go Father in heaven thank you for this beautiful day 
Thank you for the people listening in, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless them in this moment in time. Lord, help them to see and understand there's nothing in this world that we can give up that is not going to be worth it. For whatever we give up, you give us back a hundred times as much. And Lord, that's a great investment. There's there's no way um, that we would not give a dollar in order to gain a hundred. There's no way that we would not give a hundred in order to gain a hundred thousand. And so, Lord, um, I just pray. I pray today that you would help us to make wise investments, to understand that nothing in this world is worth hanging on to. That if we give it up for you, you'll reward us. You'll give us more than what we had before. And Lord, you'll bless us in eternity for it. God, help us to see that. Help us to know that that's what we're striving for. That's what we're trying to achieve is eternal life and to spend eternity with you. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright guys, thanks for tuning in for another week. We love you. We're praying for you. If you can't catch us in person on campus this weekend, catch us on Facebook, YouTube, and podcasts. We'll see you guys soon.